It is good to be up here this first Seanless Sunday of his sabbatical. I did consider making a logo for that. It's not in my giftedness. In fact, stepping aside and even using this clicker is outside my comfort zone. But, and, and I also note my voice. It's just a little deeper than normal. The cold started last week, and uh, one week and four negative COVID tests later, here I am. And now Lauren gets to have his share of the cold, but he did send his curry nonetheless. <laughs> as, as I looked at this passage from Galatians, it was a part of the lectionary, suggested lectionary texts, and it's one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. So it was easy for me to choose to focus on this one. It's powerful in its simplicity, and yet it's also deep in its meaning. In our time today, I'll be contrasting what it means to live in bondage to the law and bondage to our sinful natures versus living in and by the Spirit and being guarded by the Spirit and guided by the Spirit. I'll also be noting the effects of our sinful nature versus the fruits of the Spirit. Please join me in prayer for a time together. Our loving God, we just help ask that you would help us sense your presence here with us, guide our thoughts, guide where, where our, the Spirit would want our thoughts to wander, and help us to sense that you will continue with that. In Jesus' name, amen. I consider the context of scriptures to be an important part of our understanding them. To understand them in our time and culture, we have to understand the time and culture of when they were written. And so part of the context of the passage in Galatians is the reality of Pentecost, which happened 50 day, days after Christ's resurrection, 10 days after his ascension to heaven, and about 19 years before this passage was written. As we noted and celebrated a few weeks ago, Pentecost is when God sent his spirit to dwell within the people and then the people gathered in Jerusalem and then throughout time. Christ in his human body had ascended to heaven. But on that day, the Holy Spirit was released with the sound of a wind and visually with the tongues of fire. The Spirit gave those present the ability to speak in languages they'd not learned. God poured his Spirit out on his people. Christ's church was born that day and the gospel of Christ was spread throughout the region. Now, one of the areas where the gospel spread was the region of Galatia, a part of modern-day Turkey, which is about five to 600 miles from Jerusalem. Biblical scholars note that what we know the book of Galatians is likely one of the first New Testament letters to be written, likely around 48 or 49 AD. It is considered to be written by Paul to the church in Galatia, possibly when he was in Antioch prior to his attendance of the Council of Jerusalem. As I understand it, the churches in the region of Galatia were facing a crisis as part of the growing pains of the new church. Sean noted a few weeks ago a sermon about tensions created by the Judaizers, or the legalistic Jews, who insisted the new Christians must keep the Mosaic law. They were proposing the new converts to Christ, first needed to become Jews and become circumcised, and then they become Christians or followers of Christ. Circumcision was an important part of Abraham's covenant with God and one of the long-held practices of God's people. Many who were born as Jews found it challenging to leave that important practice behind 
as they became Christians. Insisting on circumcision as a prerequisite to becoming a Christian implied that what one did or what one allowed done to one's body was more important than what one believed. These practices were more important than in whom one had faith and then followed. So it was then at the Apostolic Council or Council of Jerusalem, a few years after Paul wrote this letter, that those gathered debated and agreed upon what parts of the Mosaic law were now to be understood in light of Christ's death and resurrection and what practices were now going to be changed. In the first four chapters of the letter to the Galatians, Paul is outlining the framework for his understanding of the gospel of Christ. Yeah, I knew this would happen. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith of Jesus Christ. And we've come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith. Faith in Christ and not by doing the works of the law, because no one will be justified by the works of the law. From Galatians 2, 15 and 16. Yeah. I had it upside down. That was my problem. <laughs> so for, the, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith could be revealed. Therefore the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. By now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ, for in Christ Jesus, we are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I don't think we can fully grasp how revolutionary Paul's ideas were, because most, if not all of us, were raised as Christians from a Christian perspective from birth or later. But I have no doubt that those who heard or of Paul's words here were very uncomfortable with it, and if not angered by them. He was encouraged them to let go of something that was near and dear to them. He was asking them to change their identity, who they were. But then Paul goes, goes further in Galatians 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the, the yoke of slavery. I fully acknowledge that it, I'm uncomfortable at times talking about the bondage or the yoke of slavery, primarily because of our historical awareness as well as our understanding in present times of the horrors of slavery. But I do think the concept of bondage in other ways is important for us to consider. Two ways among others that we are held captive is in our temptation to be in bondage to the law as well as our temptation to be in bondage to our sinful nature. Paul is emphasizing in his letter to the Church of Galatia 
the law does have a value. The laws of Moses, as Paul stated, acted as a disciplinarian to guide the people in their practices. However, the purpose of the law changed with Christ's death and resurrection. Paul was the rep- referencing the freedom now available from the yoke of bondage to the Mosaic law. For us, the bondage to law can come in other ways. It may be in the form of our being challenged to let go of some of our long-held practices and beliefs, which are so intricately tied into who we are as individuals or as a church. We find it challenging to separate ourselves from our beliefs, which can be helpful in some ways, but problematic in others. We are also tempted to see our beliefs as God's beliefs. In a conversation I had this week, a woman referenced a friend who tended to be somewhat dependent on others. She told me she wanted to say to the friend, God helps those who help themselves. She then laughingly stated, well, no, that's not really in the Bible. What I could identify with in her statement is the beliefs we hold dear, whether from the Bible or from other places, do become a part of us and influence the choices we make. Therefore, some of our beliefs or perspectives start to become truth to us with a capital T, which implies the beliefs should also be truth to all others. To let go of those truths or to consider alternate perspectives can be very challenging, if not painful. But I think a part of what Paul is challenging believers to do is to not be so stuck in our long-held beliefs and practices, no matter how valid they are, such that we fail to be open to other individuals and other perspectives. When we do realize when we're stuck in a belief or pattern of belief, we may find it helpful to consider ways to restructure or shift our thinking without having to change it completely. For example, I was taught by my mother to always be nice. I was taught that from a very young age. I don't recall a single time she said that, but I somehow received the message nonetheless. Now, obviously, being nice isn't necessarily a problem. But in my experience, there were times when, as I expected myself to be nice, I also expected myself to be passive. Then in being passive, I became frustrated that not having my needs met or not being understood. But again, it was because of what I expected of myself. So I did shift my thinking and realized I can be kind and caring to others, but I can also choose to be assertive. I could give voice to my needs or wants as requests and share my thoughts with others in a respectful way. So I could be kind and assertive both. I could shift a little bit in that. I'm not suggesting we need to change our beliefs and practices just because a new idea or a new interpretation of scripture is being suggested. What I'm encouraging us to do is work to give up the bondage of thinking that we have been and always will be right with a capital R. It is in not letting go of our need to be right at all times that we experience this bondage. And it is in letting go of our need to be right that we can experience freedom. In Paul's letter, he's also warning us to not be stuck in the bondage to our sinful nature. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. 
Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, sorcery, idolatry, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is not a news flash to any of us that there are parts of us that are very vulnerable to sin. We want we want what we want, and we want it now. And maybe even sometimes think we deserve it. And we not, may not only want to believe we're right in what we're thinking, but we have the right to do what we want, no matter what the consequences. In our selfishness, we put ourselves above others and above God. I do, however, want to draw a distinction between our human nature and our sinful nature. Our human nature includes our sinful nature, but there's more to our human nature than the parts of us that sin. Our human nature also includes our human tendency to make mistakes that aren't sinful. In my role as a counselor, especially to those who are vulnerable to unhelpfully shaming themselves, I encourage others, as I encourage myself, to embrace my humanity. Embracing my humanity means that I make mistakes. But I do well, I turn clickers upside down. Um, but I do well to correct my mistakes. And if they are sinful mistakes, to repent from them. Make apologies. Repent to God. But whether our actions are sinful or not, please learn from them. That is the point. That's part of the discipline to learn. And I don't believe we need to devalue ourselves and unhelpfully shame ourselves in order to better train ourselves in healthy practices and to refrain from sinning. And I think an important part to keep us from the temptation of sin is to remember Jesus' words that Paul referenced in the passage. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God and loving one another and showing that love was the reason for the law in the first place. So keeping our intention to love in focus also helps us in dealing with the temptation to do other things that could potentially harm others. I also want to emphasize that a key part to not falling victim to bondage to the law or to not indulging in the sinful nature is to be open to be led by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not desire, gratify the desires of the flesh. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Paul isn't saying, hey folks, you don't need to think about the law anymore. Rather, he's saying, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Again, no newsflash, but living by the Spirit can be a challenging thing. Again, because of our human nature. Those who were part of our worship service on Pentecost may remember or if you heard Eli's insightful question as Sarah was sharing about Pentecost during the children's time. In his curious voice, he asked, what does it mean to be baptized by the Holy Spirit? Excellent question. I think that by living by or in the Spirit, 
or being baptized by the Spirit can mean letting the Spirit do what the Spirit does. God's Spirit desires to dwell within us and among us, to comfort us, to guide us, to teach us, to convict us. Our role is to be open to the Spirit's presence and power on a regular, if not continuous, basis. It can include a relinquishing of power to be in charge of all aspects of our lives. I readily admit, as I was thinking through this part of the sermon, I felt convicted of my own independence. It's easy for me to rely on my intellect and experiences in forming my opinions and making my decisions. Sure, I want the Spirit to help me prepare a sermon or a Sunday school lesson or be with me as I was with clients. But I may not always be open to allowing the Spirit to help me in other choices as it would be helpful for me to be. In that confession, I also resolved to be more open to the Spirit and to ask the Spirit's help in that. For me, it, remind, it means reminding myself as I remind myself of other things to take that extra couple seconds to say, Lord, I invite your spirit to dwell in me, to lead me, to guide me. It is then in the spirit living within us that the fruits are manifest. By contrast, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. For those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. And I think this manifesting the fruit of the Spirit is twofold. As we trust the Spirit, we readily live out these characteristics. But as we live out these characteristics, we are better able to trust the Spirit. In my illustration earlier, I noted my mother taught me to always be nice. I do believe that decision to be made nice is easier if I allow the Spirit to help me in it, to not just rely on my memory from childhood, but to allow the Spirit to help me be nice as well as assertive. In closing, I emphasize the last part of the previous scripture. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. This is my prayer for us as individuals and as a congregation. May we be open to the Spirit, where the Spirit leads us, where the Spirit guides us.